we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered of voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Election Verification Network. The nonpartisan EVN is made up of election officials, researchers, and advocates committed to accurate, accessible, transparent, reliable, and verifiable elections. Learn more or get advice from the experts themselves at electionverification.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we've spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent way. On Dem and Don't Vote, we share what we've learned, provide insights from the world-class team we've built, interview leading election experts and thought leaders passionate about our democracy, and explore election issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election process. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and timeless advocate for verifiable elections. I'm your host for this very special episode, a conversation with two U.S. EAC commissioners, Christy McCormick and Thomas Hicks. The Election Assistance Commission is charged with providing states resources and services in support of election administration. With the midterms behind us, co-hosts Cameron Quinn and John Sevis chat with the commissioners to look back and look ahead on the state of election administration in the U.S. and the challenges and opportunities to come. Thank you to everybody who's listened to our episodes to date. We've witnessed a tremendous growth in listenership, and we love producing these podcasts for you. We want to especially thank every single one of you who has left us or is about to leave us on a review on Apple iTunes and other podcast platforms. And now, our conversation with the AC Commissioners McCormick and Hicks. We are so fortunate to have today with us from the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, Commissioner McCormick and Commissioner Hicks. And I'm going to just sit back and allow my co-hosts, John and Cameron, take over from here because our intention today is to just have a really fine conversation about the 2022 election, a look back and a plan ahead for 24. Cameron, I guess I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Greg. From your nationwide vantage point, what were the two to three biggest issues voters faced in the 2022 elections that either the EAC or state election directors can try to address before the 2024 elections? And if there are solutions to those challenges, is there sufficient funding available or they, do they need to go find that funding? What I would say is that the election officials did a great job this election cycle. There were no major incidents on Election Day. The anticipation of violence and confrontation throughout the process 
of the election we were really concerned about. But I think that there are things that we need to focus on moving forward. And one of those things is making sure that we continually have information provided to the election contingency or the, the election folks who are going to go vote, what they need to bring to the election themselves or the information that they need to have available to be able to vote in person. And I think that election officials constantly say, whenever I've traveled around the country, that they could use additional funding. Congress gave out a large amount of money over the last three years, $805 million, but I believe that we can always use more. Yeah, I would say my two or three things are we did have a lot of concerns about the threats to election officials, and obviously no one should have to face violent threats, but that has become a reality. And so the EAC has developed a number of resources for election officials and will continue to do so as new threats arise. We have an election threats webpage that provides information on that. And I think it would be great if election officials became more aware of the resources that they have available to them on how to report threats and what they need to do to keep themselves safe. I think there's also been some confusion on voting rules. There's been a number of changes in state election laws across the country in the past few years. And I think there's been some confusion on the voters' part on the rule changes that are either happening in another state or in their state. And then, of course, with false information that's circulated, I think that creates an even bigger problem. I would also say that voters, I think this year and in the past several years, have had concerns with the integrity of our process. These concerns often swing from party to party as a result of who wins an election. But nonetheless, voters are concerned about whether the machines can be trusted, whether election officials are doing the right thing and not putting their fingers on the scale, and that we maintain a one-person, one-vote and no outside interference in the election. Much of these concerns are misguided based on bad information, but it's a real concern and it has affected voter confidence. I think the polls have showed mistrust over the years, whether it be from one side or the other, and we need to address this and we need to address it with more transparency, getting more people involved as poll workers. If they're working the polls, they get to see how the process works and they can see the layers of checks and balances and the testing and retesting of the machines, the dedication and the honesty of the election officials and the poll workers. We've seen an uptick in observers across the country, which I think is actually a good thing. And they ask about everything. When I was in Las Vegas for the election, there was an observer there who actually asked about some air conditioning duct work that was on the floor of the warehouse because he had a fear that somehow ballots were being shoved up these pipes and shredded somewhere else. We do need to be more transparent about everything. And as far as resources, no, we don't have enough resources. And how that's going to happen, I think, is something that legislatures and councils and boards of supervisors are going to have to look at in addition to Congress. Let me ask you to follow up to just a couple of those, because I certainly got physical personnel security for election officials is issue that didn't used to be the case, really is now and probably is going forward. That certainly seems something that additional financial and personnel and organizational resources are going to be needed for. I also have sort of a twin concerns about the process integrity. You mentioned, I think we're going to have increasing concerns about process integrity and then voting system technical integrity. So for those two voter concerns, and as you mentioned, the disinformation around them, looking ahead to 2024, 
Do you see areas where some additional resources could be applied to either of those problems or to the voter education issues that, that Commissioner Hicks raised? Because less than a billion dollars from the federal government is not a lot for nationwide. So w- which of those things do you think might be candidates for additional resources? I would think both of them should be. I would also give a plug to the commission and the four commissioners voting in unison to approve in June the allowing of HAVA funds for officials to monitor the internet and to provide for physical security. They still have to adhere to all the rules of using federal funds, but we all, we approved that this past summer. I also think that moving forward with additional funding, I think that Congress does have an ability to do that, to ensure that money can be used to improve the process. The money that we see in 2022 will probably be used in 2024 because of the way that the procurement process works is looking at additional funding, and I hope that they actually approve that for us. And then um, in terms of missing disinformation, I think that one of the things that people who have concerns about the electoral process, most, if not all, and I want to say all jurisdictions allow for the public to see the logic and accuracy testing of voting equipment and the process overall so that they could go and actually see what's going on with the process. So don't get your information from Facebook or wherever, unless it's from a trusted source on Facebook. And so go directly to the election officials to find out where you vote, how you vote, and when you vote. Okay. So Commissioner Hicks, I think you already anticipated part of our next question, which is one of the things that you mentioned that you were proud that you had a unanimous vote for. So what other things in the 2022 election cycle that that EAC in specific, whether you commissioners or the whole team as a whole, what happened that you were able to do to be proud of? And when you think about looking ahead to 2024, what are some follow-ons to that that you think you could build on? I think every election cycle is different. And so when I first became a commissioner in 2015, it looks a lot different than it did in 2022. And when we first started looking at what became the Help America Vote Act in 2001, that's a lot different than where we are today. So trying to look into a crystal ball and say where I think that 24 will be is a little difficult for me, but I would say that ensuring that all eligible voters are able to cast their votes and have those votes counted accurately is probably our number one concern. We, again, unanimously approved the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines 2.0 in February of 21, and now those are fully implemented, and we hope to have both FISTLs proof to be able to accredit it, the new standards, and hopefully manufacturers can start building to those. We also implemented a life cycle policy that basically starts to depreciate older standards. And we did this last month in our first public meeting in our new facility back in the district. So this means that manufacturers will need to start the real process of developing and submitting systems that meet the new standards. So those are a couple of things that I would be looking forward to in 24. Just jump in here for a second and say we have a broad audience, and so whenever we hear a term that they may not be familiar <laughs> with, I ask us to help demystify it. So I noticed that the Commissioner Hicks mentioned VISTL, an acronym. Could you, Christy, tell our audience what is a VISTL? Sure. It's a voting system test laboratory, and when Commissioner Hicks refers to the VSG, he's talking about the Voluntary Voting Systems Guidelines 
but that is a set of standards that all voting systems that are submitted to our program are tested against. And those guidelines, the voting system laboratories will test too. Whether it's a security measure or it's an accessibility standard that they have to meet, there are many standards. And before a system is certified on the federal level, the voting system has to meet all of those qualifications. We'd like to see some new systems come in, hopefully by 24. We do hear that some manufacturers are planning on bringing in systems for testing. It's important to note our testing and certification program is completely voluntary. So it's up to each state to decide how much they want to use our system, whether they want to run their own testing and certification program or use their own laboratories. But in, in any case, with the adoption of these new standards this year, we are going to be requiring all systems that come to us to have penetration testing. And that's something new going forward. Another thing that we would like to do is to staff up our testing and certification program to be able to go out into the field more. Currently, we're stuck with people bringing things to us, and we don't get to see the systems out in operation in the field. So we're working on staffing up to make that possible. And then uh, you mentioned 2024. We're working on creating more products through our new clearinghouse division that will help election officials improve their processes, whether it's cybersecurity or election night reporting or canvassing and certifying the elections, auditing, chain of custody, all kinds of different topics that we feel election administrators need some help with. So we'll be doing that. We're also making some great progress on launching a portal that will facilitate information sharing amongst state and local election officials so that they can provide feedback to each other and to us on what we can do to provide assistance to them. Wow, that is a ton to follow up to. And I want to kick a couple of those over to Cameron, because I think you, you touched on a couple of things that some of our listeners might really not be aware of, which is that each state and each county and other locality nation is able to do their own local spin on all those really important things that you just mentioned, physical chain of custody, cybersecurity, and so forth. But rather than reinventing those wheels, you're providing some resources, particularly for local election officials, to perhaps undertake those important duties in a better informed and more uniform way. And I think that really ties back to the issues that you raised earlier about concerns that people have, some in many cases meaning concerns, in some cases it's disinformation stuff, but really about the integrity of the process. So Cameron, looking at it from the perspective of the previous jobs you've had as an election official, how are those process standards and process integrity really going to be a point where EAC's efforts can provide real assistance to states and locals? The good news is that I know that both Tom and Christy are well aware of this. The biggest thing for election officials when they start looking to the next cycle, once they've put this one to bed, and we're not yet to the point that quite every state, I think, has put theirs to bed, but it's very close. The important thing is to have the information and the opportunities. I think the portal sounds like a fabulous innovation, making sure that the resources are put out sooner. Because in places as large as Fairfax County, where I was, you're getting started on the next election in January because you've got to be having the elections in June when you get to the primary. I, going back to the whole notion of elections cybersecurity capabilities, can you all talk about what EAC and, to the extent you're aware of it, DHS's CISA program are doing to enhance cybersecurity capabilities of state and local offices and the progress that you're aware of from 2022 and 
what other things might be on the horizon from lessons learned as a result of the 20 elections and the 2022 elections? Christy, do you want to start from this, Carson, or do you sure, want me I'll to? I'll be happy to start. One of the things that has happened since elections were designated as critical infrastructure is that there has been a really improving coordination and lines of communication, both between federal agencies and down to the state and local election offices. This has helped open the door to some transparency and communication with the private sector with an eye toward securing our elections and responding to threats. And much of the EAC's efforts in this area have been geared toward strengthening the cybersecurity of the voting systems we certify, including creating security standards for election supporting technologies such as e-poll books, administering HAVA grants to cybersecurity improvements, and publishing best practices as a part of our clearinghouse function. We do work very closely with CISA. They have their own budget. The Cyber Access and Security Program is an, e an integral part of our mission, and we maintain an election security preparedness page on our website with the cybersecurity and risk management training, best practices, and other resources, including resources that CISA has. They have a lot more money than the EAC does. Their main focus is cybersecurity, BARS is election administration, but we work together with them to try to get the states what they need to boost their cybersecurity and cyber hygiene efforts. And obviously, Congress had appropriated, as Commissioner Hicks mentioned, in the last few years, over $800 million to do that. And so we support the states in doing whatever they can to boost their cybersecurity and improve the administration of federal elections. And right now, I think we've seen about half of that money spent so far on cybersecurity issues. We provide lots of best practices and standards in the areas, as we mentioned, of physical security and chain of custody. Those are very important areas for security in elections. And then just hope that we can come up with some resources to help the public better understand the type of security measures that we use to secure election technology. We're going to be working on that and working on some new resources and products to bolster the public's understanding of what we do to secure elections. Well, Commissioner McCormick, I want to just quickly follow up to one thing you just said, because I think it's so important, which is helping election officials to help voters understand how election security really works. That's I just want our readers to really understand the importance of the work that EAC and state and local election officials are doing to really try to get the facts out there about how elections do and don't work in terms of whether it's cybersecurity, operational security, process integrity, whatever. I think the more we get fact, then the better off we are with the continuing factor we're always going to have of suspicion and misinformation. But, but I wanted to turn uh, the discussion a little bit back to, to cybersecurity as well, just for another moment. And that's because that issue is one that's been uh, one of the focuses of uh, mistrust and misinformation. And I really am happy to hear that as much as half of the available funding has been spent to help state and local elections offices improve their cybersecurity capabilities. And I, as always, we're looking ahead to 2024, and I think you can agree that the continued and hopefully accelerating spending of that funding well for 2024. But looking back at 2022, is there any information about election 2022 that you can provide about any kind of actual cyber operations or any disinformation, intentional disinformation operations that did occur and, and how officials were able to cope with those? So I recognize some of that might be sensitive, but we're really looking, looking for some stories of what happened in 2022, how did people cope, and what's the lesson learned looking ahead to 2024 
when facing actual cyber threats or at least intentional falsehoods about fake cyber threats. Do you have any thoughts on those questions? I think every election cycle is different. And so when I first became a commissioner in 2015, it looks a lot different than it did in 2022. And when we first started looking at what became the Help America Vote Act in 2001, that's a lot different than where we are today. So trying to look into a crystal ball and say where I think that 24 will be is a little difficult for me. But I would say that ensuring that all eligible voters are able to cast their votes accurately and have those votes counted accurately is probably our number one concern. We, again, unanimously approved the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines 2.0 in February of 21, and now those are fully implemented. And we hope to have both FISTLs approved to be able to accredit it, the uh, new standards, and hopefully manufacturers can start building to those. We also implemented a life cycle policy that basically starts to depreciate older standards. And we did this last month in our first public meeting in our new facility back in the district. So this means that manufacturers will need to start the real process of developing and submitting systems that meet the new standards. So those are a couple of things that I would be looking forward to in 24. And as I mentioned, there is more coordination and information sharing between the states and the federal agencies than ever before to monitor for individual incidents as well as state actors. The good news is that the election officials have worked diligently to strengthen and maintain the security of their systems. And we've seen relatively few incidents of cyber attacks reported in the last couple of years. Obviously, the EAC is not an intelligence agency, so we don't collect this information. But we we are in close contact with the FBI and with the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, intelligence agencies. And quite frankly, there hasn't been that much. There's been a few little things here and there, but really there's nothing of major significance to report. The bad news is that we're going to have to remain vigilant because threats continue to evolve and bad actors become more sophisticated in their technical abilities. Going to transparency is going to be critical to improving the trust of our systems, and we're going to have to continue to coordinate and maintain vigilance. I'd like to underline that for sure, because it really does seem that in this cycle, as well as the previous one, it did seem a little bit more quiet compared to some previous cycles in terms of nation state adversaries being detected, conducting exploratory cyber operations, what looked like a fairly large scale coordinated phishing attacks on locals in, in prior years. It was a quiet quiet midterm this time, which in one way is good news, lots less grist for the misinformation mill. On the other hand, as you point out, two years from now, another big election, and that's going to be important, I think, for your leadership as well as others to help state and locals adopt that eternally vigilant posture, because using this past election as a baseline for expectations for the next one, maybe not a great idea. And that's where I think that the additional and continuing resources that you're talking about for the states and locals is so important. But turning away from cybersecurity for a while, even though I know that transparency about that is, as you said, stupendously important. Cameron, let's let's move to the next segment. Absolutely. So thinking about voting equipment and voter registration systems, did you see any particularly good election innovations in technology for these in 2022? And as a additional question in regard to that. Are there some blue sky thinking innovations or goals that you all have been thinking about that you think would do a lot to make voting technology more trustworthy 
or make it easier to reassure ordinary voters about cybersecurity? What did you see lately that was good? I'd be happy to take that on. One of the programs we have at the EAC is something called the Clearinghouse Awards or the Clearies. And so we ask that jurisdictions across the country send us in their innovative ideas. And whether that's the use of HAVA grants in election modernization or outstanding innovations in elections, outstanding innovations in cybersecurity and technology, we want to have the jurisdictions send us their ideas. We had several winners in these categories last year across the United States in all sizes of jurisdictions. We did see some innovation in the way people are managing population growth, some technology in that. We data-driven solutions. One interesting innovation was something that Los Angeles County did. Los Angeles is the largest election jurisdiction in the country, but they use the Internet of Things platform to track their ballot boxes that are transported each day from the voting centers to their tally operations center. The system was creating a breadcrumb trail with frequent reports of where those boxes were at any given time. And so when the boxes were in motion, they could be tracked and alerts could be sent for their arrival and departure. I thought that was pretty innovative and I hope to see some more things like that, especially when it comes to transparency and people being able to track either their ballots or ballot boxes or things like that. It's great to be able to see a chain of custody for ballot boxes that kind of go into a dark hole as they're being transported. We've seen cars tailing other cars because they're watching the ballot boxes. So this is a cool little innovation. I agree. That's a great idea. I would have loved to have had that in Fairfax when we were waiting on all of our precincts on the far end of the county to bring the ballots back because it was hard to gauge when we were going to be able to go home. I think we'd love to see more technology in voter registration ideas. We do encourage online voter registration. Some people still criticize it, but I think it's great because it provides more accurate information for voter registration lists. Another thing that we've been suggesting to people in terms of maintaining voter registration lists is to be using outside third-party data companies, such as the credit bureaus, because they have the latest addresses for everyone in the country. If they're tracking someone who owes money, for example, they have the latest information, much better than the post office, actually. So we recommend pairing up with Experian and some of these other groups. For a, It's a cost, obviously, but it's going to give, they have better data sources and data-driven solutions to some of those voter registration issues. And then testing and testing and certifying of poll books. Poll books are getting more and more popular across the country. Uh, it's a great way to speed up the intake time of voters, especially when it comes to them being able to use a driver's license, for instance, to pull up their ballot style. And it just brings more accuracy to the system as well. There are digital and technical solutions that we're pushing that we think can improve the process. That's great. So I want to thank you particularly for tying that back to some of our earlier questions about what are the things that some of the existing financial resources and operational resources states and localities can do to actually improve incrementally cycle over cycle, particularly in ways that voters can actually see. So seeing ballot boxes, transiting on a map with little location vectors on them, being able to have confidence in the results of the voter list integrity because it's visible to voters what the interaction with the credit bureau may have been. Those are all really great things. They can translate directly into to voter confidence, and they also require funding for jurisdictions who haven't been doing them to start doing them. So I really appreciate connecting those dots. Yeah, I'll mention one other thing, too, I think. Please. 
is end-to-end verification with your ballot. We're working on that. It's something new in our voluntary voting systems guidelines, and it's going to take some work. But I think being able to verify that the ballot that you actually filled out is actually the one that's received and cast. So we're hoping to see some more innovation in that area as well. A couple of things that I would jump in on to talk about is for in terms of allowing for technology to catch up on some things so that if we look towards 24, 26, or 28 to allow for voting machine manufacturers to build systems that allow for those who have disabilities to use those same systems. So you're not having two systems in a polling place, that you're having one. And I think that could go a long way to building trust towards the voting process overall. One thing that the EAC did that I thought was very innovative is we worked with the University of Rhode Island to do a scale of what would happen if you added couple of more voting machines. What would happen if you took out one scanner to do a polling place layout for voting for election officials? And that's all on our website to see what would happen and the lines that would increase, how lines would decrease. And those sorts of things aid a lot towards the trustworthiness of an election. So that if I'm not standing in line for 12 hours, that I have more confidence in the system, that if I can walk in, provide what's needed to the election official, get my ballot, cast my ballot, and then walk out of that polling place within 20, 30 minutes. I think that does a lot to aid in the confidence of ordinary voters. Yeah. So that doesn't sound to me like a little thing, to be honest, particularly when we're looking at cases in use of early voting and voting centers in many states. We have local jurisdictions that are, in some cases, doing that for the first time or scaling it up from having done it the first time. And really having resources that can suggest how to lay out these new spaces and run them both effectively, but also, how do I say this, laid out with voter confidence in mind. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So it's visible. That's huge. More importantly, if you have standards that if you can have this many machines, it will make this much difference in how long people stand in line. It makes it easier for me as a local election official to go to my board of supervisors and say, I know we have to have two for every polling place, but I'm going to tell you that in these polling places, I think we need three or we need four, and it's going to have this effect on the line. They're going to pay attention to that. They may not be able to give them to me when I ask, but they may start thinking about how they can build that into the budget. Indeed. Commissioner McCormick, I think you had a comment you were going to trying to leap in there. I was going to basically say the same thing as Cameron. It helps figure out where the resources needed to need to go, especially when we have limited resources. One of the things we do now with our EVE survey, we have an election administration and voting survey, and we collect the most comprehensive statistics about elections in the country. We do that after every general election every two years. But we have a tool now that allows jurisdictions to go in, find their jurisdiction, and find other jurisdictions that are approximately the same size that they are, and see what those other jurisdictions are doing. Matching up jurisdictions by size and by resources is something I think that's going to be helpful to all of us. And the more we can do that, the more we're going to find efficiencies in the process, especially given the limited resources. So I want to try to squeeze in a two for here, maybe give you all a choice for a final question. It's a boring topic for some people, but it's near to my heart. 
and that is ballot audits, specifically risk limiting audits. So we've got some other segments on our podcast for voters to understand this, but just to be more specific, it's the process by which officials hand process a statistical sample of the ballots to cross-check the work of the ballot counting computers to make sure the computers didn't screw up in a statistically significant way. So we're going on five years since the National Academy's report on election security and election integrity made a major recommendation that risk-limiting audits should be a nationwide practice, but also said it may take a decade or more to get there. One option for your final question is if either or both of you have a reflection on where we are on that decade or maybe more than a decade-long process of getting ballot audits uniform across the country and what the outlook for that might be going forward. But we might have missed an important question here. So if you were in our shoes, if you think there's a final question that we should be asking you, please <laughs> please spring up with that too. We're happy to talk about the audits and what's going on in that space if you want to talk sure. about that. So where are we in that process? It's halfway through the Academy's 10 years, but where do you think we are in terms of adoption, experience, and hopefully acceleration? When we began collecting information about audits, and I think it was about 2008, we had about 23 states and maybe D.C. that were co con conducting any kind of post-election audit. We're now up to the 2020 data, and we've got 44 states that are requiring post-election audits by law. And then we've got states who don't require audits actually doing audits as well. We are seeing an increase in the number of jurisdictions doing risk-limiting audits. I think that's a little bit of a learning curve for some jurisdictions to learn how to do that. There are obviously some limitations with risk limited audits that the closer the election is, the more samples you need to take to make sure the statistics work out. But routinely seeing more and more states employ audits. I think one of the concerns is who's doing the audit, as we saw in Maricopa County. And are we auditing ourselves? Should we have third-party audits? I think that there's still a lot of questions to be answered on how to conduct these audits and who should be conducting them. My thought is that we should also be pushing for the process audits. I think that increased confidence in elections with the public. One of the things we'd like to see is more process audits, and that is checking to see whether all the procedures were correctly followed in an election office. And I think we're seeing a little bit more of that kind of, sometimes it includes looking at ballot access and ballot reconciliation, whether everything was complied with. Sometimes these are called procedural audits as well, or compliance audits, but we are seeing a number of states do this. And I think personally that it's a good idea because I think it builds confidence that the system was run correctly and that voters can have confidence that everything was done the right way. Commissioner Hicks, thank you so much for stepping up for that last question of what didn't we ask you? <laughs> so we didn't ask you, looking ahead, what can voters do to improve public confidence as well? And your point, of course, that all those activities do require increased funding, both for EAC's leadership and for the state and local operations. Cameron, any last comebacks before we wrap this up? Can you just explain for people that aren't familiar what penetration testing is? So essentially penetration testing is where a system is brought into our laboratory and it is attacked in every possible way to see where the vulnerabilities might lie in the system. Once we know where the vulnerabilities lie, and you can never know all of them, some come up later depending on how the machine is used, but the more vulnerabilities in advance, the more you can address them. And so now we're requiring that kind of testing before a system comes to us for testing and certification against our guidelines. So we're asking the manufacturers 
to have their machines tested in such a way that we know that they're as impenetrable as they can be, or that any vulnerabilities that are there can be addressed before that machine gets certified and put on the market. Great. And I know, Christy, you didn't quite finish your comment before. Tom had mentioned the issue of needing more poll workers. If you all can address the challenges, because my sense from my time there is we just kept losing them as opposed to gaining the ones we were losing. But I wanted to put that out there to think about. I'll just put in a plug here, not that you need more plugs, but for an additional role for EAC to play, which would, of course, require additional funding. But I think that as Commissioner McCormick, as you point out, we are seeing some uptick in process audits. It would be great to have that be added to the information sharing capabilities so that states and localities can learn from one another's experience and be able to accelerate adoption of this process more than everybody just starting to do it on their own. Sorry to add something to your list, but I think it's just as important as you pointed out. From your mouth to Congress's years for funding, we went through many lean years of funding at the EAC and have just recently gotten more funding. Hope to get more so that we can complete our mission and do what our middle name says, and that is be of assistance to election officials. Commissioner Hicks, you talked about the challenges of poll workers, and that's always been a huge concern of mine. I know in Fairfax, we spend enormous amounts of time trying to recruit new ones faster than we were losing the ones that were aging out. Any Updates on innovations in poll worker recruitment across the country or a plea for folks to step up? There's always a plea to step up and recruit a poll worker from my vantage point. We learned a great lesson in 2020 of the vulnerability of a number of our poll workers with COVID-19. And so when that came about, we saw a number of younger poll workers step into the the space. But one of the things that's not been talked about last year is that we had a number of corporations and organizations step in as well to allow for their employees and their volunteers and whoever to serve as poll workers. They gave them paid time off. They gave them credit and so forth for students. And I don't think that same robust enthusiasm came about in 2022. But I do think that the EAC did a great job in terms of poll worker recruitment day back in January and then Help America Vote Day on August 16th of this year. We hope to look towards allowing for that in the coming election cycle as well. So I think that as we move towards more innovation towards uh, election centers or more voting equipment that's more modern and more high-tech to try to get more people involved. That's not necessarily saying that we want younger people involved, because I think that older folks are just as savvy to serve as poll workers with technology as younger folks. But I think that we need more people to be a part of the process. And I'll just add to that, that when we had our poll worker recruitment day and our Help America Vote Day, we provided some toolkits that are available on our website to election officials that included graphics and social media messaging that they could plagiarize from the EAC and customize for their own jurisdictions. We are doing everything we can to support them in attracting new poll workers. We have a link on our website to the states, so if someone comes on our website and wants to be a poll worker, we can send them to the right location where they can serve. We've seen a number of jurisdictions actually start recruiting from within their own governments. So for example, in Clark County, Nevada, they use workers from the rest of the city government and the county government to work the polls. I went into one polling place and it was all the air quality engineers that were running the polling place, but they were doing a fabulous job. And so 
the more we can see of that kind of thing, I think the better. We've seen a number of jurisdictions actively recruit in the schools, and it's a great place where students who are taking foreign languages can help out because we have a need for poll workers who speak other languages. And that's been really helpful as well. So we're working on all kinds of different ideas to get more poll workers. It has been a, an issue. I think we're in a changing environment in elections and that we're going to more mail by mail voting. We still need as many people to work to open those envelopes and to count those ballots. And so even though we might not have as many polling places, we, you mentioned vote centers, we are going to vote center models more often. But we still need people to do the work. And it's not a highly paid position, but it's a rewarding one. You get to meet your neighbors. You get to do something to help the country. And it's our civic duty to be able to participate in democracy in that fashion. That's great, Commissioner McCormick. And I just want to just extend our greatest appreciation for both Commissioner Hicks and Commissioner McCormick today. We recognize and appreciate how busy you are and taking this time to help our audience understand some more about the work that you do and its impact and what's transpired and what we can look forward to. Just thank you so much, both of you. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Have a nice, good conversation about elections with folks who are interested in it and know what we're talking about. At the Trust the Vote Project, we are working to make election technology more verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. We call that the VAST mandate, and we're doing it by building open source voting technology, the people's voting system. If you would like to support our work, please join the Trust the Vote project at trustthevote.org and click the join button at the top. An annual membership is just $25. However, if you contribute at least $5 per month, we will also give you insider access to Zoominars to meet the members of the team to discuss their work, limited edition gear to support the project, and other exclusive goodies. Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of my co-hosts, thank you for listening. Dem and Don't Vote is a podcast production of the Trust the Vote Project. Our executive producer is Royfield Brown. Our program's producer and executive editor is Aaron Fisher. Our news reporter is Frayne Masters. Our content research and fact checker is Jenya Coulter. Media relations managed by Sloe McManus. And art direction by Bob Smith. The podcast is produced on Riverside FM, London, England, and Berkeley, California. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. The Trust the Vote Project is a nonprofit, nonpartisan initiative building the people's voting system. Visit us at www.trustthevote.org to learn more and join the movement. The Trust the Vote Project, where code causes change.